Grab a seat, guys, and if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. I was going to tell you guys that, uh, thank you guys for leading us in worship. I was about to, to say that uh, all those guys are high school kids here at our church that are leading worship, but actually, as I realized that they have, actually, they're all now graduated from high school, so I can't say that, but it's a... Uh, Great to see our young people leading in that way. Amen? Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 1, because it's first. And in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Does this sound familiar anyone as we read through this? Sounding familiar? seven loaves. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. So if you've been with us here, it wasn't very long ago that we were in the scriptures, about five chapters ago, looking at almost the exact same story. In fact, critics of the Bible would say this is the exact same story. One of the big critiques against some of the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, is this particular passage. There are a ton of people that say, all right, here's how you can know these are just stories handed down, that it's just sort of slapped together. It's not the same author. We don't know if it's all true. And they would point to, for example, this story. And they say, look, it's recorded two different times, feeding of the 5,000, and then they call it the feeding of the 4,000, and see, they can't even get their numbers together. And so there's a lot of criticism about this particular event. Um, And and while there are definitely a lot of similarities, there's a lot of reason to believe that these are without question two separate incidences, two completely, totally separate instances. For example, in the feeding of the 5,000, the people are with Jesus for one day. In this story, the feeding of the 4,000, the people are with Jesus for how many days? Three days, the scriptures say. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had the people sit down in groups of 50 on green grass. This story takes place in a barren, desolate land. There's no mention of green grass or any of the, the distribution sitting people down. There's none of that stuff. He's in a, they're in a desolate place. Um, I, I was, I was going to make a joke. I used to, when I, when I first started, when we first started this church and I was preaching, White City became my go-to make fun of town. So like if we were looking at a story and it was some far off desolate place, I would say, you know, like White City. And everyone would go, ah, it was all funny. Almost everyone. I would always have the inevitable person, I'm from White City. And I was like, then you should move. But no, um, 
No, I, I wasn't like that at all. I wasn't like that at all. I mean, everybody makes fun of White City. It just gets made fun of, and, and that's the way it was. And I was like, well, I don't want to offend them, so I'll stop picking on White City. So then it became Klamath Falls. And I would just say, it's like Klamath Falls. And I mean, I think Klamath Falls is even easier to make fun of than White City, let's be honest. But sure enough, I would have people all the time, I'm from Klamath Falls. My mom's in Klamath Falls. Are you making fun of my mom? No. Not really, but anyway, all that. And so, so I couldn't do Climate Falls anymore. So I picked Canada. All right, Canada, come on, it's Canada. Really? We now have Canadians in our church. I'm not joking. And so I got the Canada thing. So here's what I've decided. I am now, and this is my final decision, it's Happy Camp, California. Okay, because look, I was there. I don't care if you're from Happy Camp, because if you're from Happy Camp, you agree with me. Okay, but I was there. It is a barren middle of the nowhere place. And it's just like in this story, all the people are there and they're like, we've got nowhere to send them to get anything for food or anything. That's just like happy camp. It's just, unless you're a, a Bigfoot aficionado, there is no reason to live in happy camp. It is a desolate place. So I'm just throwing that in for free. If you ever hear me make fun of happy camp from now on and you're from happy camp, I'm sorry, but look, I've, I've done all I could, okay? It's happy camp. So they're in a desolate place, um, and they're not, they're none of this green grass stuff. They're in a wilderness area. In the feeding of the 5,000, there was one prayer of thanks for the food. In the feeding of the 4,000, there's two. He prays blessing on the bread, he prays, prays blessing on the fish. In the feeding of the 5,000, how many loaves are there, Bible students? Five. How many fish are there? Two. In this story, the feeding of the 4,000, how many loaves are there? Seven. How many fish are there? A few little fish is what it actually says. You will not make it in the Bible bowl this year. Um, in the feeding of the 5,000, how many baskets are left over? 12. In the feeding of the 4,000, how many baskets are left over? Seven. And there's also something you may not realize. There's a different kind of basket being talked about in that story, in these two stories. In the feeding of the 12,000, it's 12 kind of small, you know, sizable, but not giant baskets. In the feeding of the 4,000, they're gigantic baskets. It's the same kind of basket referred to that would later let Paul down outside the city wall when people were coming for his life. So you're talking about a basket big enough for a full-grown man to get in, okay? So two completely different sized baskets, two completely different amounts, but maybe more telling than any of that is that later you're going to see in verse 19, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he's speaking about two completely separate incidents. So we're not just studying this because it's a, a repeat, I and mean, this is another separate incident, another separate event that takes place with, with its also very important implications and, and things that we can draw out from it as well. Um, but, uh, but I always thought it was funny, though, that we pick on that, because you're talking about, okay, so G yes, Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a little bit of food, and he distributed it, and there was 12 baskets left over. And then we come to 4,000, we're like, no way, he didn't do it twice. He didn't do it twice. It's like, really? I mean, I was talking with, one, with our Israeli tour guide when we were in Israel. And we were talking about one of the miracles um, that the New Testament records with regards to Jesus Christ and the resurrection and some things like that. And he is a Jew. He's not a Christian, but he's very, very interested, if you will. He said he's, he's conflicted. He said, at one point I asked him, he said, I'm not sure. Ask me in two years whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. But when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, and I was asking him, so you hear these things, what do you think? And it was his answer was awesome. He said, look, we're talking about a God that created the heaven and the earth in six days. So why are we like, you know, getting all upset about these little things over here? If he's that powerful, then that's no big deal. 
And so the same thing is true here. If he fed 5,000 one day, why would people go and pick at the fact that he feeds 4,000 a few days later? Are you, do you don't believe that he has the ability to do it? I think the issue is just unbelief in general. Because if you want to disbelieve the story, then you can always try to find reasons that you can pick apart, reasons you don't have to believe this, or reasons that you can, you can totally ignore that. You can do that all day if you want to. Your issue is non-belief, not 4,000 versus 5,000. That makes sense? But we believe the Bible here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, amen? So is this one event or two? It's two events. Did it happen or did it just a story? It happened. Okay, so Jesus is here with his guys and he is in a desolate place and they're teaching there for three days and he's compassionate about the people. He's concerned with them. He feels like, man, even if I send them home now, some of them won't even make it. They won't make it back to their house. I mean, happy camp's a long ways away. So he's like, they're not gonna make it there if I don't do this. So we need to feed them. And you see, they go through sort of this same thing again. How many loaves do we have? And we see this story again. So maybe you would ask, okay, so it's two different events, gotcha, believe it. Jesus fed 5,000 people, then he fed 4,000 people, gotcha, believe it. Baskets left over, I'm on board with all that stuff. Why do we need to learn this again? I mean, why, why do us, we are disciples, we're learning something here, we're studying this particular passage, why is it that we need to learn this particular story again? I actually had someone complain to me not very long ago that was talking about reasons that they don't like church or reasons they don't like certain Bible teachers or whatever the case may be. And he just said, look, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and I know these stories. Why do I have to keep studying these Bible stories that I've heard a million times over and over and over again? I know them. Why do I have to come together once a week or twice a week or whatever? Why do I have to get up every morning and read the word to learn these same stories? I know them a million times. He said, I know where you're going with the teaching before you even finish your sermon. And I was like, then you need to come help me write my sermons because I don't most of the time. That would save me a ton of time. But valid question. Why do we need to study these things that we've heard over and over and over? Why do we need to learn? I know repetition is key to learning, all that kind of stuff. But what if you've learned it? Why do you need to study this again? Well, we're gathering here on Wednesday nights in particular to study these stories through the lens of disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, people who are desiring to learn to do what Jesus did to duplicate, if you will, the ministry of Jesus in the world around us to follow our rabbi. That's what a disciple does. So if we look at this story, we might see maybe there's a different way of looking at this. Maybe, maybe instead of coming to learn these stories over and over and over again for yourself, maybe you're coming to learn them, to be reminded of them, to, to gather from them, if you will. Not for yourself so much, but maybe it's for someone else. You know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't consider yourself the person sitting down to eat the meal in this story as much as the disciple who's been entrusted with the meal in order to serve to the other people around you. It's a very different way of looking at things. So you have in this story, Jesus takes the food, the fish, the bread, he distributes it by giving it to the disciples, he entrusts it to them, and their responsibility was to carry and give it to these things. And you need to understand the message that's going on here. It really starts all the way back in the time of of the Exodus, in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel had been delivered from slavery through the sacrifice of the spotless lamb, and they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they had nothing to eat. And they're a nomadic, they're former slaves, they're not a bunch of gardeners or anything like that, and they're in the wilderness. And if you've been to the Middle East, you know that area, it's barren, rocky, gnarly wilderness terrain. So they had no ability whatsoever to take care of themselves. And yet every morning when they would come out of their tent, 
they would find what laying around on the ground? Bread. Manna, the scripture calls it, which literally means what is it? God provided for the people of Israel through the entire time that they made their way through the wilderness when they had no ability to take care of themselves whatsoever. Every day, with the exception of the Sabbath, they would wake up and there on the ground would be bread. The message to them was, I am Jehovah Jireh. That's the Hebrew word for God, my provider. I'm the one that will sustain you. I'm the one that will feed you and nourish you and bring you through these things. And every day when they woke up, they would be reminded that God is their provider. And then you fast forward all the way into the New Testament and Jesus comes onto the scene. And he's born in what city? Bethlehem. Anybody know what Bethlehem means? City of? Bread. Comes into this world through city of bread. And he says, I am the bread of life. He says this in uh, the book of John, chapter 6, verse 48. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and then they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says this, this thing that was even happening back in the Exodus was pointing to something much more significant than just bread on the ground. It was pointing to me. I'm the bread of life. He comes from the city of bread. I'm sure that wasn't a coincidence. And then he goes on, and we're told this account by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, but he goes on in the Last Supper with his disciples, and he says, take and eat, this is my body broken for you, as he's serving thee what? Bread. So there's something significant going on. He's showing the people, I am your source of all satisfying fulfillment. When he fed the 5,000, he was telling the people of Israel, and they were filled completely. They were completely filled. They were stuffed. I am the one who will satisfy you. It It wasn't about bread. It was about the one who provided for them. That's the way it had always been the case. The message to the people of Israel was that I am the provider. I am the all-satisfying source of nourishment and fulfillment. So knowing that in the background, consider these two events and what's going on here. In the feeding of the 5,000, he's in Jewish territory. He's in Israeli, Hebrew, Jewish land. And he comes to them and he has them all sit down and he feeds them all this bread and feeds them this fish and they gather up all the baskets left over. How many baskets again are left? 12. Is that significant? Yes. The message is, I am your all-satisfying source of fulfillment. I am the one who has the ability to feed and satisfy you. And he's speaking to Jews and all 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, as well as the 12 apostles. I believe that 12 is significant for them as well, that in their serving others, they would themselves be fulfilled. So this is the message in Jewish territory. But now Jesus has sort of been on the run, if you will. And now he's in what's called Decapolis. It's, it's Gentile, very Gentile territory. Paganistic, Hellenistic, um, Greek culture, pagan gods, all this stuff in the area. And so when he's feeding the 4,000 right here, we're not talking about the Jewish people like before. This is a different audience. So now he feeds these people and he serves this bread and he serves this fish And the leftovers are gathered together. And how much is left? Seven. 
seven big heaping giant baskets full. Now, I want to be careful, and I always try to be careful with regards to some of these numbers, especially when you go into, some of you guys have heard some of these things before, numerology and Bible numbers and all that. And I've seen people get caught up in some of this stuff and go way too far, and they're weirdos in like a year. So you need to just be careful with some of this kind of stuff. You can start trying to take some of this numerology, ooh, that number's here, and that verse plus that verse, those numbers are this. And if you add them up, that's that number, which means this. And they're doing all this stuff, and I'm like, look, they didn't even have numbers on the verses back then, man. You're going too far. You're going too far. Just don't try to insert meaning into things. Just read the text for what it is, and we want to be careful. But biblically speaking, the number seven is a very significant number as you're going through the scriptures. It is a number that always represents what? Perfection and completion. I heard both, and you're right. Perfection and completion. So here's a message to the people, these Gentile people. I am the one who can satisfy and fulfill you perfectly and completely. So we have these two messages given to these people. And Jesus is that person, right? He can satisfy everyone to full, complete, satisfied. Remember the word means stuffed. That Jesus is the one that can absolutely satisfy us in a way nothing else can. Can he satisfy the world? Absolutely. The Jew and the Gentile? Absolutely. You know what's interesting to see though? And sad as well. You ever notice Jesus' supply always uh, outnumbers, if you will, the demand? You ever notice that? There's always leftovers. I, I died for the sins of the world, and yet few are those who find the path of life. That's the sad part. But that's the reality of it. Jesus is the one who is the all-satisfying source for all this world. And so this message is giving to both of them. He's already declared himself to Israel. Now he's declaring himself to those outside the nation of Israel. And sometimes disciples, sometimes all you disciples, listen, sometimes we learn these things, even if you've heard this message a million times before, even if you've read this text a million times before, sometimes God's putting something on your plate because he's entrusting it for you to be used for those that are outside the fold. Sometimes, you ever had that happen? Like you just read it that day and later that day you run into somebody who's going through something and you're like, you know what? I just, today I was reading. Happens a lot, doesn't it? Doesn't the spirit work that way? And so, so here's where we can get ourselves into trouble. It's really easy to, to look at things and go, okay, I'm at church and he's telling me the same story I've already heard before. I want something different. Okay, well, if you're treating church like a restaurant where you're a consumer, and you got the same meal all the time, that would be frustrating. <laughs> if you ate at Taco Bell every meal, you'd be dead in a week. But if you, if you did, if you did, at a certain point, you need something different, right? But people can work at restaurants like that and serve food all the time. And that's different. And I, I really think, this is such a big deal, I've pounded on this before, but I'll take opportunity now. We gotta remember we don't come to church to be entertained. We are a gathering of God's people who come together to be edified for the equipping of the saints. So when we gather together, even our time in the word, th though we do want to be fed, don't get me wrong, and though we do need to be nourished individually, absolutely, but God entrusts his word to us that we might then, even as he says to Timothy, entrust this in other men who will then entrust it in other men. That we are a missional community. So, so it doesn't end with us that we just take, 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 take and never give. 
Sometimes we're learning these things again. We're being reminded of these things again because God is saying, here, serve the bread. Those guys haven't been fed yet. Go feed them. Here's your fish. Take it to those guys over there. And we're sitting there. I don't want fish anymore. Well, it's not for you, Jeff. Go serve. And I think we would do really well to understand that if we look at ourselves as disciples and servants and less as consumers or customers, just saying, maybe we would find, even in Jesus' words in Luke 12, to whom much was given, much is required. And for him who is entrusted much, they will demand more. And so maybe sometimes things are being entrusted to us because God desires that we go and share those things with others. That's something to consider. We're, we're, you know, the Dead Sea in Israel has rivers that flow into it, nothing flows out and it's dead. No life in it whatsoever. That's not what we're to be. We're to be rivers. We're to be conduits, if you will, that allow God's word to flow through us, the life of Jesus to live through us and to be disciples who are serving others, whether it be with the meat of God's word or the bread of life himself unto salvation. It's not just about us. So maybe we're hearing a lot because it's not for us. But maybe it is for us. Maybe we're hearing it for the umpteenth time, as my mom would say. Maybe that's a southern word. But maybe we're hearing that over and over and over again because God's actually trying to get through to us. Take a look how this plays out. Look at verse 11. So the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and he got in the boat again and he went to the other side. Now, I don't know what your translation says, but I'm using the English standard version. And there's a way to read this um, where you see that the guys, they come to him, show us a sign, show us a sign. And you go, he sighed deeply like, guys, why are you looking for this? I'm I'm not going to give you another sign. I'm just going to give you the sign of Jonah. See you later. And he walks off. You could read it that way. Only problem is you're reading it wrong. What this actually means is really, really frustrated. It's actually written when he says this, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Interestingly enough, in the original language, it's written in the form of an oath in the way that we might say, I swear if I don't do this, then may he strike me dead or something like this that you would just say out of frustration. And it's a word construct that's used to express intense emotion and it's left open-ended. So Jesus says to him, oh, you wicked and perverse generation, if I should show you another sign, and then it just stops. And he goes, this is the sign you'll get, the sign of Jonah. That's the only sign that I'll give you, which is speaking, of course, of what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, there is intense frustration in this with these people that are just pulling on him. Give me this. Show me this. Come on, puppet. Do another trick for us. Prove. I mean, he he just fed 4,000 people with a little bit of food and has all this tons left over. And they're like, well, do a trick so we know you're for real. You guys know the story, the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man dies and is going into hell. And he says to Abraham there, he's like, can I, can I just go back? Let me just come back as a ghost and appear to my sons so that they'll know that I can warn them so they won't end up following me into this place. And what does he say? 
They have Elijah and the prophets. They have the word of God. They've had all of these things. They're not going to change their mind if you show up. And this is the case with Jesus. It's so easy for us to mislead ourselves into thinking that if we were alive in that day and we got to see the things, or if only people could see the amazing miracles, it's just not true. It's just not true. And here's these guys. And what they're doing is, and the word that's used here, in a barren place, and they're saying to test him, it speaks of the same language used to speak of when Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness and is saying, if you're Jesus, if you're really the son of God, then do this. It is a satanic recreation of the same kind of testing based from unbelief, not from the honest desire of a heart, of the heart to find and seek the Savior. And Jesus is like, I'm done with this. And he says to him, you'll get one sign, the resurrection. And it says he turned his back on him and they leave. They get in the boat and they go on their way. And sadly, that's the reality of it, that the resurrection has happened. I was in the tomb just last month. It's empty. And sadly, people are going to be held responsible. We, said, we read the verse, right? To, to whom much is given, much will be required. And there are people all over the place that have been given the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it won't be, it's not enough for them. And they're not believing. And it's sad because they won't find salvation because of that. That should be heartbreaking for us to see that that's what happens should cause us to pray for people that there would be a softening of their heart, not a hardening of their heart to the gospel. Because it's one thing if they reject us on the street corner. It's another thing if their rejection, when we realize that it is leading them into an eternity apart from Jesus, an eternity of suffering. It's sad, right? It's sad. But this is what happens. You got these hard-hearted people that won't believe, but only the unbelievers on that end, they're the only ones that get hard-hearted, right? Believers never get hard-hearted, right? Can you sense my sarcasm? I'm trying to lay it on pretty thick. Believers never get hard-hearted, right? You know, sometimes the people who are, that are in the greatest danger of becoming hard-hearted are the ones that are the closest to Jesus. Because look what happens. Verse 14. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread, which is funny. Isn't that funny? <laughs> they had all this bread and they get in the boat. Oh, shucks. <laughs> they forget to bring bread. So they get in the boat. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now leaven, as you guys know, it's the yeast inside the bread that causes it to rise. But in the scriptures, it's used as a symbol for what? Sin temptation, that which grows within us and causes us to turn away from Christ. That's what it's a picture of. So here's these guys, they're out of, they're out of bread. They're like, oh, we don't have the bread. We've only got one loaf. Now, I'm not a math major, but I do have a calculator. And let's do just a little bit of math here, okay? So in the feeding of the 5,000, come on, wake up. In the feeding of the 5,000, we had 5,000 people, maybe more than that, but we'll just say 5,000 men is what the passage says, right? How many loaves of bread were there? Five. So let's do the math. 5,000 divided by five. We don't really need a calculator for that, do we? But let's do it anyway, public schools. It comes out to what? 1,000 people. So Jesus was able to feed 1,000 people with one loaf of bread and still had some left over. Now they just fed 4,000. That is going to change our output. So let's, I'm an ex-engineer. We got to do this right. So this time we had 4,000 people divided by, how many loaves did we have this time? Seven. So let's divide that by seven. And that comes out to 571 people per loaf plus lots of leftover. 
How many disciples are there? 12. Jesus is in the boat, that makes how many? 13. How many loaves do they have? One. So 571 minus 13 equals, they have enough for 558 more people to eat. I mean, just doing the basic math. And yet here they are freaking out. Oh no, we left it. We left it behind. We've only got one loaf. That's what they say. And so Jesus hears them. He can, he can sense this going on. And he says to them, guys, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of Herod. Now, what does that mean? People have debated that. The leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, leaven of the Pharisees has to be religion and and self-sufficiency. And Herod, he was just sort of a self-indulgent pig. So maybe that's like lust and all of these kinds of things. And there's a lot of different theories about what those things can mean. But in reality, those two parties had very, very little in common. The Pharisees and Herod, their paths never crossed except in one place. And that was disbelief of Jesus Christ. In fact, they would partner. They, that's the only place where they joined together was in a rejection of Jesus as Messiah, a rejection of Jesus as the all-satisfying provider, Jehovah Jireh himself. So we can at least hold on to that one. So Jesus says to them, he can hear them. We don't, we don't have any bread. We're out of bread. What are we going to do? He says, watch out. Beware the sin of disbelief. Beware the sin of rejection. Beware the sin of failing to realize who I am. Failing, we talked about it this weekend, that God raises his children differently than we raise our children. We raise our children because we want them to learn to problem solve. We want our children to learn how to pay their own bills. We want our children to learn how to make their own living. We want our children to be independent, learn how to put their own dishes away and wash their own dishes, praise God. I have little kids, you can hear where we're at. I mean, that's the kind of the way we raise kids, right? But God doesn't raise his kids that way. When God raises his kid into maturity, he's raising someone to depend on him more than they did when they first believed. So it's an inverse relationship between the two of these, right? And so Jesus is saying to them, watch out. Don't become like them. Don't become like them. I'm your fulfillment. I'm your provider. I'm the one who took care of the needs in the wilderness. I'll take care of your needs unto salvation and I'll take care of your needs after that. You come to me. And so what's their response? Says to them, why are you disguising the fact that you have no bread? Oh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. I'm sorry. So he says to them, beware the leaven of Pharisees, beware the leaven of Herod. Verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So this is basically their reaction. Man, we don't have any bread. What are we going to do? Jesus goes, don't forget. Don't sin like that. Okay. What are we going to do? We don't have any bread. And they go right back into the same discussion. Right back into the exact same thing. And so Jesus' word construct from here on out actually goes on to show more sinless. Not, Not saying Jesus sinned and lost his top, but He speaks with passion to his disciples to such a degree here that only happens in a couple of other places in the scriptures. One in the Garden of Gethsemane when they wouldn't pray and one when Peter tries to say, you don't need to suffer and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. That's the only other two places where he speaks to his disciples with this kind of passion. And so he says to them in verse 17, Jesus said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Those are words, by the way, that are used by the prophets in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in different passages throughout the Old Testament that were calling on Israel who kept abandoning God to seek provision and fulfillment in other worldly religions and other places. And he would say, do you not have eyes to see? Do you have eyes and you haven't seen? Do you have ears and you haven't heard? And so he uses these words here. And do you not remember? Verse 19, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Right. Chapter, verse 20. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not get it yet? You have come to me with nothing. And it's not about the five. It's not about the fact that you had five loaves one time and that's enough. Last time you had seven. It's not about how many fish you had. It's not about how many people we have to feed. It's about the one that you're here to serve. I'm the provider. There's no formula out there that you're to depend on. You're to depend on a person. I'm the person. You trust me. That's what he says to them. And I wonder how many times... We as Christians get anxious about things in life, get frustrated about financial situations or relationship problems or the things that are going on, and you come to church on Sunday morning like you did this week, and hear a message that talks about how God uses difficult things in our life to drive us to dependence on Him, and you hear the pastor say, or you read it on your own in the mornings, and you're reading these texts yourself, whatever the case may be, and you you hear Go to Jesus, go to the Lord, put your cares on him, take care of all those things, and you go, right. And then you instantly turn right back to the anxiety. Me? Anyone else? But here's why this is such a big deal. See, you even look at this story. When when Jesus feeds the 4,000, there's almost a sense where you see even more compassion with him because you see him go, he prays for the food twice. It's almost like an opportunity in front of these Gentile people that maybe don't know God the way the Jewish people did. And he's like praying once more. Let's give thanks to God who provides this. It's a recurring opportunity to tell these people, it's about God. Let's give thanks to God. You see his compassion for the people and, and you almost see that he's guiding these people differently than he does some of the Jewish people. But the only people that you see him get really frustrated with in scriptures are the ones that are closest to him. You see him get really frustrated with the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have access to scripture in ways that no one else has and knows the scriptures in ways that no one else has because when they miss it, and they miss it a lot, And then you see him get frustrated with the disciples because they are in the physical presence of Jesus Christ every single day. And they keep missing it over and over and over. He said, then why would he get frustrated with them? I mean, he picked a bunch of fishermen anyway. He should have picked some brain bowl people if that was the case. Why is he frustrated with them? Listen, there's a big message in this. And I'm talking to church people disciples right here. If you're visiting, love that you're here. But I'm talking to like believers and especially Believers that know the word and that have been around churches for a long time. There is a huge danger that you and I can become so familiar with the words of Jesus that we completely tune them out. And we can go about things in our same old way all the time, doing things the same way we've always done, not relying on Jesus the way we've always done it. And we can hear the words and agree with them, right? Yes, depend on you. And nothing changes. 
Look what happened to Judas. He was in the physical presence of Jesus every day. He duplicated the ministry of Jesus many times. And Judas, you will not find in heaven. We can dupe ourselves into thinking that familiarity with the word and the hearing of the word are the same as the doing of the word. And yet James says that if we're that person that hears the word and doesn't do it, what does he say? You're deceiving yourself, is what he says. So I'm done with my message. The message today is, church, be careful. If you feel like you're hearing a message from God over and over, pay attention. Don't allow yourself to be so familiar with Jesus, so close to Jesus, even so familiar with the scriptures, you can quote it backwards and forwards, you got it memorized. Hey, so did the Pharisees, by heart, all of it, they had it memorized. They missed it. And they weren't listening when the Spirit said, that's the Messiah, that's the one. They missed the whole thing. And we can get so caught up in our familiarity with Christianity, with Jesus Christ, and with the scriptures that, that we're familiar in, and we just feel like we're right in that same area and we're hearing things over and over, but we're never really in applying it. And sometimes God is just knocking on our foreheads saying, wake up, wake up. I don't want you to fall into the same trap that I've seen people fall in over and over and over to think that familiarity with me equates to some form of godliness that doesn't exist. I'd rather you be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Because when you're lukewarm, I can't convict you of everything. You're just worldly enough to be in trouble, but you're just spiritual enough to feel like everything's fine, and that's dangerous. And so for us, maybe there's a message that God's been trying to get through to you. Maybe there's something he's been convicting you about over and over and over, and you've heard it, and you agree with it, and you know you need to do it, and you haven't done it. And he's been trying to get through to you over and over and over, but you've replaced maybe even obedience to that word with service or Christian duty, or or great things like devotions and prayer. But you're not being a doer of the word. Please understand, you're deceiving yourself. You don't replace service with obedience. Offering is not what Jesus has desired. And so I just challenge you. If you feel like God's saying a word to you over and over and over, you start thinking you're hearing something a lot, you might want to perk your ears up. Because it might be that God's just trying to get your attention. That message might absolutely be for you. I know my kids, when they don't feel like I'm listening to them, and you know, it happens, right? We can tune our kids out, right? I did it just the other day. I was working on something at home and I was typing and my daughter was there, dad, 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 dad. It wasn't around until like 10th or 11th dad that it actually sank in. I was like, oh, you're talking to me. Yes, what? And I just totally missed the rest of them. May we never, ever, ever do that with Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, now may you give us the ability to walk this place by your spirit, to walk from this place in obedience. If there are people in this room, Lord, who are being convicted over sin, who are being instructed things that you have for them to do, whatever the case may be, I pray, God, that we would not hit the snooze button, if you will, Lord, that we would no longer ignore those things. And that, God, though we desire to walk with you, we want to be in your word, we want to be close, we want to be gathered with God's people, but we never be in a place where familiarity with Christianity replaces obedience and an active listening for your voice. 
So I pray, God, that you would just bless us, that even these guys, as they open the word tomorrow morning, for example, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be some autopilot exercise that we go into. And Lord, for those of us that have been walking with you for a long time, and maybe you've been convicting us over something for a long time, but we've resisted it, and we feel religious, we feel spiritual, and yet we're ignoring these areas of our life, I pray, God, that you would convict us. I pray, God, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to us. And that we would understand, that we would get it, that we would no longer deceive ourselves and that we would truly follow you, Jesus. I pray that by your spirit, you would give us this ability, Lord, because it has to come from you. Our spirit may be willing, but our flesh is weak. So may your spirit have its way with us. In Jesus' name. All God's people said?